It was super cool. On that last slide, she told Benji, make sure that that last picture is on there. That's when halfway through summer camp, Nick actually got sick with bronchitis and he had to head back home. And he literally had to pass the baton, well, I guess not literally, he figuratively had to pass the baton to Marco in taking over the rest of the trip. And so Marco, the successor of Nick, had a chance to have the official handoff at that point. Super excited about the next chapter, but we're so grateful that God has brought Nick into our our midst and our life and the whole Dirtinger family. So make sure that you get a chance to welcome them and thank them after uh, the service in the atrium. That'd be great. If you've got your Bibles, open them on up to the book of Hebrews. We're going through a series talking about the supremacy of Jesus, how Jesus is greater. He's greater than than anything. And the author of Hebrews, um, I don't know if you ever watched the show Lost, but Lost was famous for having Easter eggs that were just like, Every episode had these little like inside things that you had to drill down deeper to find out deeper meaning. And the book of Hebrews is, is so packed and loaded with Easter eggs that are pointing a Jewish audience to understand deeper about how awesome Jesus is. It's, it's unbelievable. So each week we get a chance to go through and look at things that in, for 2019 uh, Christians who, who maybe didn't have a, a, a Jewish upbringing get a chance to look at it and say, I don't get the significance of this. And then it's so cool just to see um, what we see the author of Hebrews' intent all about. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be looking today at chapter 6 and 7. We're going to read a certain section from chapter 6 as kind of like the lead-in to the rest of what is being said. Um, if you can open your Bibles to that passage, and please stand as we read God's Word. He just finishes, the author of Hebrews is just giving him a major warning about not falling away from Jesus. In the midst of the heat of persecution in the midst of how everything is pulling them in every which direction. They feel like totally unstable and wondering if they're just going to like bail on their faith altogether. He's like, do not do this. He's giving them strong warnings. Like if you fall away from Jesus and like you've rejected the the Holy Spirit, there's no coming back from it. He just layers it on over and over and over again. Then he gets to this, verse 9 of chapter 6. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God's not unjust. He will not forget the work and the love you've shown him as you've helped the people and continue to help him, help them. Verse 11, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and through patience inherit what has been promised. So at a point where he's like, you want to, you want to an example of that? Abraham, and then he jumps to the next verse. When God made his promise to Abraham, since, he was one, no, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, talking about God here, saying, I will surely bless and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by something greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to the all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He's become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Last week we started a, uh, in the midst of the, another in the fire series. We had a mini series uh, in the midst of that talking about how Jesus is greater than your pastor. 
Last week was Jesus is greater than your pastor, part one. This week is Jesus is greater than your pastor, part two. This time it's personal. And we're getting into a little bit different, thank you, whoever that was. Um, This week we're actually talking about something significant with that because last week we talked about what Jesus does for us that our pastor can't do. This week we're going to talk about what Jesus will never, ever do to you that every spiritual leader and pastor you've ever been under or followed has in some way, shape, or form. When people come to Minooka Bible Church, oftentimes they're like, okay, I love this church. This is a great fit. And we don't know anything about their background. We don't know if this is like, look, I just heard about Jesus for the first time on Tuesday. And I want to find, I want to follow him. And this is where I'm going or, or what? Sometimes, however, we hear a little bit of the backstory. And what we hear is, listen, we're here because of our last church. It was a disaster. It makes every one of us go, really? Dude, no, we don't, we're not like that at all. We're just like, ah, oh, that's horrible. But people oftentimes have these types of stories. I had a pastor who didn't meet my spiritual needs. And that's, for a pastor, when we hear that, we know that that's a catch-all for lots of stuff. I didn't like his preaching. It wasn't biblical. They changed the color of the carpet. really ticked me off. That's, I didn't meet my spiritual needs kind of falls into that category. Um, I had a pastor who uh, was participating in unholy behavior. He was actually like straight up sinning and was not repentant about it at all. I mean, everybody sins, but this guy, like, just zero repentance. I had a pastor who was living in a way that was disconnected from Scripture's call. Stuff that he was doing sometimes wasn't straight up, like, sinful, but it was so abrasive that it was pushing people away from the gospel rather than to it. And I just I couldn't sit anymore underneath that type of leadership. This, this pastor crossed the line into impurity. Many of us have been part of a church or a church denomination or a church system where we've seen sexual abuse. And, and, and if you grew up in a Catholic faith, Catholics get beat up big time for that, for all the, the and legitimately uh, offended people that are offended at what took place and what was covered over within the Catholic church. But I'll tell you what, man, Protestant churches are just as guilty. It's just we're not, a, we're not as connected as the Catholic churches, and so it's, it's harder for those things to get reported But people from Protestant backgrounds and evangelical backgrounds have horror stories of pastors, youth pastors, spiritual leaders who cross the line, cross the line not only of consent, but adultery and everything else in in some way, shape, or form. And people that are in their 50s and 60s today are still walking wounded from some type of pastor, priest, or spiritual leader that wronged them in that area. I had a pastor who was a hypocrite. Actually, all of you have a pastor who's a hypocrite. This is easy to throw at any pastor because a hypocrite is someone who says, hey, don't do that, and then turns around and does the thing that they told you not to do, right? So it's very easy for me to say, listen, listen, you got, we need to be following Jesus. You put your trust in Jesus, not in yourself. And for me to turn around, and the first thing that blows up in my face on Monday, I'm not putting my trust in Jesus. I'm freaking out as if I'm in control. And so for, if, if you come across that in me, it's rightful for you to, it's a rightful thing for you to do to respond like, man, what a hypocrite. And I know you guys talk about it at lunch. Errol is such a hypocrite. It happens. But the reality is, is that's something that we can chuck at any pastors, but that's one of those things that frustrates us. Why is it that, that, that every human being that we follow is inconsistent at best in their walk? Hypocrite. Not only that, I had a pastor who lost the respect of those in the congregation, but it got worse. Not only was he poisonous by his behavior, his activity, his choices with the people that he was shepherding as a pastor, but word got out into the community. 
And now the community is not just like, oh, man, I would never go to that church. They're also poisoned to the fact, like, I don't even know if I want to follow these people's God. Look at how messed up their leaders are. How, now, okay, just, just in the midst of this, how many of you at some point in your life, from like birth all the way up till now, you have, your faith has been dinged or your life has been dinged by a spiritual leader, pastor, volunteer, priest, with regard to one of the things on this list, just by a show of hands. Okay, you're in good company. And if, if you're like, not me, not at all. What I want to encourage you with is, that's wonderful. That's so great. But again, we tell this to our church all the time. If you have not been disappointed in some way, shape, or form at Manuka Bible Church, by one of the people and leaders, you need to up your attendance. Because the truth is, is that we will give you ample opportunities to see imperfection on display. Now, the problem with that is that sometimes churches... They get really defensive about that because they think that the only way, to, the only way for a church to be is, is to have a leader who thinks that they're completely right and they're going to defend themselves to the nth degree. The author of Hebrews pushes us in a different direction. Without beating leaders up, he says, I just want to tell you how amazing Jesus is. And the, the, the vehicle that he does this through is Melchizedek. Of course it's Melchizedek. Melchizedek is someone that many of you may not have any clue about. The word itself, it's like I would never name a child that. It's weird looking. Um, I don't know who this person is, and if you don't know who it is, it's in part because we haven't taught it enough, but the other part of it is the fact that this is just a biblical rando, a person who shows up in Genesis 14 for a blip. Abraham is returning from battle. He's got the spoils of war. God, God helped him be victorious, and they run into this priest, Melchizedek, who's described not as a pagan priest, but as a priest to the one true God. Whoa, where'd this guy come from? We don't have Levitical priests yet. We don't have the tabernacle. This priest to the one true God. And so he's just this random guy that Abraham ends up giving tithes to. It's a pretty crazy, weird section. But all of a sudden you have that, and then you have King David dropping a line about Melchizedek in Psalm 110, and then the author of Hebrews spends the most time just going, you got to see how this, this, this is what I'm talking to you about, Jesus. Like all of us Jews, we love the Levitical priesthood. The Levites were a big deal, but let's have a cage match between the Levitical priesthood and that guy, that, that random guy from our, our history in Genesis and, and the, our history in David's poetry, Melchizedek. The Levitical priests, these guys were selected due to family connection. They were in the Levitical line. How did, how did you become a priest? Well, you, first and foremost, you had to be in the right family. Melchizedek, what was his family? We have no clue. We don't know. We don't know what family he's from. I mean, he could be Melchizedek Rodriguez. We have no clue. We don't know where this guy came from. He just shows up in Genesis, and he's there. The, Levit the Le Levitical priesthood, their role as a priest ends when they, when they end, when they're done with life, when they're dead, boom, no more ministry. However, Melchizedek, strangely, we don't have any record of his beginning. We have no record of his ending. Now, here's what the author of Hebrews is not doing. He's not going, okay, kids, ghost story time. Melchizedek, we don't know where he came from. We don't know if he ever died. He could be right behind you right there. We don't, he doesn't do that. He's not trying to have a ghost story or anything about Melchizedek. He's simply saying, I'm going to make a point to you from, from silence. The fact that we don't, this guy is a priest, and yet everything that we would think would qualify someone as a priest, biblically, Melchizedek doesn't even qualify for that. And yet he was. On top of that, the, in Levitical priesthood, they would take tithes from the people. And they would give those tithes to God. So grain offerings and cattle offerings. And they would give that to God. 
Melchizedek is not a priest that took from the people and gave to God. We have the weird scenario where Abraham gives an offering, a tithe, the tenth of, of all the plunder from that, that, that war battle that he went through, and he gives it to Melchizedek. He gives it to him. And so the author of Hebrews is going, isn't that interesting? I mean, a lot of you aren't a fan of Jesus being the high priest because he doesn't fit the left side qualifications. But look at this guy in our, our history that Abraham hung out with. Look at, look at that. Jesus is a priest in that kind of order. In fact, it gets even cooler. When you look at Jesus and Melchizedek, look at some of the other similarities. You've got the fact that, that both are kings and priests. They're not just a priest or a king. It's not like, you know, what's, on career day, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be a firefighter or do you want to be a seamstress? Yes. I mean, it's like both of them are going to be qualifying for the same person. But on top of that, even Melchizedek's weird name. Melech means king and, and Zedek means righteousness. He's the king of righteousness, and he's a king in a town called Salem, which means peace. And so both Jesus and Melchizedek are both kings of righteousness and kings of peace, to the point that some people have thought, what if Melchizedek was a Christophany? Like, what if, what if he was actually a pre-incarnate Jesus, so pre-Bethlehem baby Jesus growing up and dying on the cross Jesus? What if he's a pre-incarnate Jesus who's physically present, the second person of the Trinity, physically present in the Old Testament? What if Melchizedek is actually Jesus? You want to know if that's true or not? I don't know. I don't know. I have no clue if that's true or not. It could be. But the truth is that the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make is this. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. If you've got your notes, the, um, it has Psalm 110 written there. And it says, this is, what, this is the lines that David uses in, in his poem. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, again, you're probably sitting here going, okay, that's wonderful. That the author of Hebrews is geeking out over Hebrew culture and history. What does that have anything to do with Jesus being greater than your pastor? I'm getting there. When we get to that passage where, where we just read through as a, as a church, he talks about how God gives us a promise that's better than any other promise that, that should make us feel encouraged. He says this. He says, God did this so that by two unchangeable things. Wait, what? Two unchangeable things? We'll get there. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. All right, so you're killing me. Author of Hebrews, you're killing me. What are the two unchangeable things? What are the two unchangeable things that give me encouragement? First off is this. In 6 and 7, he, the, one of the first points he's making, the first of the two things is this. God promises that Jesus is God's son. Jesus, God's son, is priest forever. Which basically means this, your pastor's going to die. He may never fail you personally, but he's going to die. Jesus won't. Your pastor has an, a shelf life of his viability to impact you and share God with you and lead you and shepherd you. But Jesus, as your pastor, as your leader, never, ever will. The first thing that you should be encouraged by is this. Even though you've got finite human being leaders in your church, you do not have a finite human being in God. In Jesus, you have, God the you have, you, in Jesus, you have all God, all man, simultaneously and infinite. That's the first thing that should give us encouragement. The second part of the thing that God promises us is this. Jesus, God's son, is like Melchizedek. He bypassed typical priesthood and gives us a better one. Okay, again, 
We talked about last week, the priest was the guy who, who, would, who would receive the offering, he, and, and, and the sacrifice was made by the person, and he basically let people know, hey, you and God are good, and that person would go home. But on top of that, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement would happen, where he, he would go behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would only go one day a year and make, make provision for anyone's sins that, that were forgotten or, or were committed in ignorance or what have you. And so the people as a whole would be celebrating. We know that we're good with God. This is amazing. The author of Hebrews is again coming to the point of saying this. Jesus is saying, you have a better go-between between you and God because you're not putting all the weight on some human being. It's not, it's not some, some human being bringing a sacrifice. It's God bringing the sacrifice in himself. It's not some human being bringing the, like innocent blood. It's God shedding his innocent blood. He's a better promise because you're not banking on some animal or some sacrifice or some dude. You're banking on God himself who says, I have made a way for you to have access to God based on my record, not yours. My sacrifice, not yours. And when Jesus dies on the cross, you have that awesome moment in the New Testament where that veil that separated the holy holies from everyone else, tears. Basically saying this old system is obsolete because the greatest sacrifice has already been sacrificed and it was God himself who made it for us out of love. This is why later on in chapter 7, the author says because of this oath, Jesus guarantees a better covenant, a better promise. The promise is on him, it's not on you. You and I, we're faulty, we're flaky. We're inconsistent at best. He's not. He's not. He's faithful. And so we have a greater covenant. So when we go back to that passage, God did this so that by those two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have, we have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor. In a world where like our worlds are going bananas, where, where, where there's politics and you're just like all over the place, or your, your health is all over the place, or the stress and the anxiety of life is all over the place, whether you're 15 or, or 75, you're like all over the place. The author of Hebrews is saying, yeah, in the midst of that, in the midst of all the things that make you even ask, like, why, like, I don't even know if I could keep putting my faith in God. Why would God allow this to happen? If he's a good God, why is this suffering? I feel like I'm just torn all over the place. I'm coming apart at the seams. And he says, hold on. In the midst of the ocean that's chaotic around you, you have an anchor for your soul. You have an anchor, and it's, and it's the promise that you have in Jesus. He's that anchor. He's not changing the chaos around you. He's changing the fact that you're not, like, freaking out about it because you have an anchor for your soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Forever, without a beginning or an end, worthy of our praise. King of righteousness, king of peace, in the midst of the chaos of our sea. Let's go back to those pastors that have bummed us out. The cool thing that the author of Hebrews is pointing out is this. This is a reality that we deal with. This is a reality we deal with. But look at the fact that our faith is not anchored in our pastor or our church. Our faith is anchored in our Savior who's the groom of the church. Uh, if you just go down that list and you just look at Hebrews, this is so cool, Hebrews 7.26. I haven't changed a single word. I haven't edited a single word, but look how it lines up. Yeah, I've had, I, I've had pastors that haven't met my spiritual needs. But when talking about Jesus, our high priest, Hebrews 7.26 says, such a high priest truly meets our need. 
I've had pastors that have participated in unholy behavior. This one is one who is holy, living in a way that's disconnected from Scripture's call. Jesus is blameless. This person crossed the line into impurity. Jesus is pure. I've had hypocrites for leaders. Yeah? Well, Jesus is set apart from sinners. Means that he, he gets us and he can empathize with us, but he doesn't get us by saying, yeah, I was burned by my own decisions just like you. I failed just like you. He loves us and he empathizes with us. He can relate to us, but he shows us a picture of victory. That he's not burned by sin. He's set apart from sinners. I've had leaders who've lost the respect of those in and outside the congregation, but Jesus... Jesus is exalted from the heavens. And so for you and I, we're looking at this, we're saying, okay, author of Hebrews, what you're saying here is this. I've got disappointments for pastors and leaders. Yes. Jesus is the only one that doesn't disappoint me. Absolutely. Jesus is greater than my pastor. Bingo, you got it. Okay, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go find a better church. I'm going to find a better church, and when I go to this other church, that pastor, he's going to actually reflect the right side better, and, uh, and that's what's going to happen. And I'm just so excited because I'm, I'm at this new church, and I'm growing in my faith, and everything's great. All the garbage, the bum of a pastor that I used to be under, totally different here. It's phenomenal. And then you're there for like, like three months, and all of a sudden you find out, oh, no, these people are people too. And you're like, author of Hebrews, what? What's, what's going on here, man? I'm trying to find a church that, yes, that's good. You need to find a church. You need to find a church that, that you're having leaders that are reflecting scripture. But you have to realize that that's not going to happen perfectly. I know, but it's so frustrating because I was in one and then I went to another one. It seemed good, but then all of a sudden it, it wasn't. I know, but remember what I was saying. You're not leading the ladder of your life on, on, on your pastor or the leadership of your church. You're doing that on Jesus. Okay, I know what you're saying. I finally got it. Well, you're saying, author of Hebrews, is this. Humans are a disappointment. Yes. Even Christians. Yes. Jesus is greater than my pastor? Yes. Amen. Amen. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. <laughs> Actually, Jesus is greater than your pastor. Amen. And the cool thing is, if I'm reading the author of Hebrews right, well, then that means that, hold on a second, I can look at all this and say, what if, what if I actually don't have to deal with that? Because if people are the problem, like, I don't have a problem with Jesus. It's just organized religion. I don't have a problem with Jesus. I'm like, my faith in Jesus can be tight. God and I can have this awesome relationship. I'm just going to set myself apart from the gathering of Christians. Because it's the gathering of Christians that have been the problem in my life. It's the gathering of these people that call themselves followers of Jesus that have always been my problem. It's not God. And so I'm going to like step away from those people. I'm going to stop meeting together with them. So it's just going to be me and God. We're going to be sitting in my living room. We're going to have coffee and the Bible. It's going to be the best church service ever. Me and God. And the author of Hebrews is like, have you read the rest of the letter? No, what are you talking about? And then three chapters later, he says this, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Sounds good. Not giving up meaning together as some are in the habit of doing. What are you doing to me, author of Hebrews? You tell me how messed up, how, compared to Jesus, how he is the perfect example. He is the perfect leader. And yet you're telling me to continue in this? And the author of Hebrews giving us the example of the great high priest. We have the high priest Jesus who said, this is what I'm calling you to do. Love God and love one another. And that starts with other believers. Don't give up. 
the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Oh. What are we supposed to do with this? How can I do that? First off, let Jesus be your anchor. Reevaluate the aspects of your dependence and your allegiance to a person or system or church. And say, have I, put, have I taken Jesus out of being my go-between and I've put that pastor or pastors or pastor from my past in that place? And the truth is, is that, that what we're called to do is to, to make Jesus our anchor. If you're, I just wrote up a prayer. I'm not a big like, fan of um, reading prayers that are written by someone else, but sometimes it does help me, I found in the last couple of years, just going over prayers that someone else have prayed, just like realizing this is an amazing, this says what I've been trying to say. And if, on the back side of your notes, I've got this prayer that basically kind of sums up chapter six and seven. And you could tape this to your truck dashboard or in your mirror, your house or whatever. Just as something that if, you, if you're looking for something that gets you off in the morning to the point you're going in the right direction, you're kind of centering around who Jesus is, this is something that may help. Jesus, and just say this to him out loud. You could say this as you're driving. Jesus, thank you for truly meeting my needs when no one else can, for being holy when I, your creation, am sinful, for having nothing on your record when all of us do, for being pure when we often are comfortable being polluted, for being victorious when we fall short. And thank you. Thank you for going behind the curtain to do battle with all of my sin and the sin of this world so that we could be restored to you through you. You alone are my anchor, dear Lord, and I love you. Each day, remind yourself that your anchor is not your pastor, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not your job. It's Jesus. Amen? Secondly, though, this is the, the cool thing, is that if we realize that Jesus is that role, he is our anchor, then we can all of a sudden start to do business with things from our past, that we're hurtful. And actually, the same Jesus who is our anchor can be our strength with those who've let us down in the past. A lot, a lot of times, people have come into a church system from, from a, a painful past. Like, man, this church burned my family. Or, the, or this, this, this guy totally, like, he, he messed around with my faith because of what he did or said. And so we were like off the grid for a long time. And, and then we came here, and I'm just so glad that we're here because we just feel like we're, we're, we're out of that toxicity and it just feels so good. And I just want to say, awesome, that's great. However, I think Richard War is right in this when he says that pain that is not transformed will be transmitted. If you have pain from the past and you haven't given that to Jesus to be transformed, you will find a way of transmitting that to the people around you, starting with your family and then emanating out to those around you, even your church. You come from a, a painful past and you haven't dealt with it and you're like just so stoked that you're in a situation where you're not, you're not having to deal with the same issues that that other church or that place that spiritual leader was all about back in the day. Awesome. However, if you haven't dealt with the pain, it's going to find a way of tweaking your soul and coming out and causing pain to those around you. Pain that's not transformed will be transmitted. So what do we do? 
with those who've wronged us in the past that were spiritual leaders. The freeing example that we have in Jesus is for us to respond to them by confronting, forgiving, and praying. Now, not all of these are equally applicable. If you were someone who were, and you were, you were the victim of some type of abuse, it may not be safe for you to confront that person. It may just not be safe for you. However, in, in other situations where it is safe, there is an amazing freeing element that happens in your soul when you say, I'm not going to allow this past pain against this fallen priest or pastor or spiritual leader in my life continue to damage the connection I have with my high priest, Jesus. And so I need to, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that when a brother or sister sins against you, you go and you confront that person. First, just the two of you, and then, if, if need be, with two people. And the hope there is that this person realizes the error of their ways and they're restored. I got to tell you about a time that this happened in, in my life with someone that I had wronged. Um, back when, man, this had to have been like 10 years ago maybe, um, there, there was someone in the youth group and, and I, I just like, I really, really, I think I, I overreacted to a situation and came across really, really harsh and strong against this person saying decidedly that this was not going to be something that I was going to allow, blah, blah, blah. And I, I, I was over the top. I wasn't speaking truth with grace. It was over the top. And I didn't see this person for, for, for years after that. And then just a couple years ago, all of a sudden, they come through the doors at the church. I'm like, whoa, it's so cool. So good to see you. And they shared with me, I just need to let you know. They had the audacity to do that. So I need to tell you something. What you told me my senior year in high school damaged me and my faith. And I used that as an excuse for years to distance myself from God. But I forgive you. And it was amazing. That person is, is, is a part, a vibrant part of our church family today. I think in part because they didn't simply hold on to their pain. They allowed their pain to be transformed, not transmitted. And they, and they forgave me. Forgiving is so cool. Forgiving isn't saying what happened wasn't a big deal. Because again, we have the example of our high priest according to the author of Hebrews. And that means that we can say like Jesus, no, what you did was, was a big deal. And Jesus, Jesus didn't die on the cross because our sins weren't a big deal. Our sins were such a big deal that he had to die on the cross, but he did so out of love. He forgave us. And so when you're forgiving someone, you're not saying, I want to be BFFs with you again. That's reconciliation, like we're being restored. Sometimes forgiveness is just saying, I'm going to choose not to, not to continue having a bitter attitude towards you, that whenever your memory comes up in my mind, I'm going to hate on you psychologically over and over and over again. Which brings me to Shorewood. Um, Shorewood... One of the, the perks of having your house burn is that your insurance company relocates you to a place while they're trying to restore your house. And so our insurance company says, okay, we're going to move you from Manuka to the land of wood from the shore. And you're going to go over there. And so our summer home is in Shorewood. And, um, and one of the, the, the coolest parts about this particular summer home is that we experience something that we've never had, which is a pool in the background, in the backyard. And it's like, and it's, a, it's I mean, it's, it's an outer ground pool, so... Nice. And it's like, we're like going, 
there's a pool out there, and it's all like, and we could get in the water every day, and, it, and it's been so, so amazing. Like, we're just like, just chilling out like on flotation devices back there, pretending like we live in Palos Verdes. It's just, it's so cool. And so like, and the thing was though, that, that one of the sandbags that holds the, um, the stairs that go down, it got a nick in it or something, but I was looking down, and some sand was like escaping into the water, like around this, the, the rim. I thought, that's not good. I'll take care of that tomorrow. And I, and I went in. Next day I come out. Because the filter was on and it's pushing water like this, all of a sudden the sand's like... And I'm like, oh no. I really need to take care of this. But I do not have the time today. And I came back the next day. And there's this more. I'm like, okay, I, I, I've been putting this off for too long. I've got to take care of this. And so I get in there and I've got the hose. And I'm like... And I'm like, man, this is taking forever. Man, it's everywhere. This is like sand. It is sand. And I'm just going, and it takes so long to get it all out. But I'm like, finally, I've dealt with the problem. It's over. And I come out the next day expecting to see like a Tahiti blue pool bottom. And I'm like, what? And I see pockets that I missed. I'm like, are you serious? This is why I've got kids, though, so they can do it. But I mean, (laughs) when I look at that, I'm like, oh my gosh, isn't that so much like forgiveness? Sometimes you've been putting off forgiving someone because you're like, they don't deserve it. And they don't. But forgiveness isn't saying, I'm forgiving you because you deserve it. Forgiveness is saying, I'm tired of holding the bitterness and the poison inside my body against you. So I'm going to take the bitterness I have against you and I'm going to give it to Jesus. Do you deserve it? No. But I didn't deserve God's forgiveness either. And he forgave me. And when you finally have the courage to trust God in doing that, it's like, okay, it's yours. I'm still hurting, but I'm choosing to forgive this person. I'm glad that I've, that's a one and done. I never have to forgive again. And then you need to come out the next day and it comes back into your mind. You're like, are you serious? I thought I took care of this. Why is it still hurting me? Because God, God is a one and done forgiver. As us humans, we're not. We have to every day come back and say, is there anything left? I'm just gonna, whenever I find it, I'm gonna take that bitterness and give it to Jesus. And take that bitterness and give it to Jesus. And bit by bit, you find yourself more and more free. And more and more living the life It's built around the anchor for your soul, Jesus, your high priest. Finally, though, it's not just other people's issues. Let Jesus be your salvation when confronting your own failings. Because again, if you've got pain from the past, other people do too. And other people have pain from their past because of you and me. And one of the key things that that I think that would be incredible is if you allowed the same Holy Spirit that allowed you to have the courage to confront and forgive and pray for someone else, to allow that same Holy Spirit to confront your own sins. Perhaps you came from a church And the way that you left that church wasn't right. And today, you need to make a phone call or send an email or set up a a face-to-face where you talk to a former pastor or or spiritual leader and just say, listen, I think it was probably a good thing for me to leave when I did, but the way that I did wasn't right. And I need to apologize to you. Being at the same church for 21 years, the thing that's been blowing, has blown my mind so many times is watching people leave our church angry sometimes and rightfully angry about something that took place. And to see a decade or more go by and to see them come back and to hear from them, I want to apologize to you for how that happened. And then for them to hear from us, we need to apologize to you for how that happened too. That's the beauty of a church family. Not perfect. Following a perfect Savior who's our go-between. Amen? So today what I want to encourage you to do is simply this. We're going to have an opportunity for us to pray. 
And, and it, 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 I'm going to have uh, people, if, if the people that have been asked um, that are going to be up front for prayer, if you could come forward now. Um, one of the things that, that we want to encourage you to do is simply this. If you're somebody who is carrying some of that pain from the past, like you've got some baggage from a spiritual leader, what they did or said to you, man, wouldn't it be amazing if you walked out of here free? Like, like you, you actually got to the point where we were able to deal with some of the stuff that you're like, okay, I'll deal with that some other time. They don't deserve me to deal with that now. Whether it's from your childhood, later in your life, or last week, what I want to encourage you to simply do is this. As we have the next two songs, to come forward and just say, I just want God to help heal this part of my heart, to change this part of my heart, to help me, or maybe give me the courage to go back and apologize to the person I need to apologize to. If you could stand, I'd like to just simply give a benediction before these final two songs. And this is the benediction that I wrote to the burned out and to the broken. If you're someone who's been the victim of a pastor or spiritual leader who sexually assaulted you, Jesus sees you, he hears you, he saves you, he loves you. If you've been bullied and belittled and beat up by some spiritual leader who heaped on you guilt and shame that was outside of the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, your Savior, Jesus, he hears you, he sees you, he saves you. He loves you. If you've been pushed out, shunned, or marginalized unjustly by someone who led a church that you are a part of, your Savior hears you, He sees you, He saves you, He loves you. If you love the church, but you have the tedious burden of following a group of leaders who are imperfect, of interpersonal issues, and fail, people who are pastors who've been charged with leading the flock but do an inadequate job of conveying to you the love of the Savior. That Savior, He hears you, He sees you, He saves you, He really loves you. If you're carrying baggage from the past, Please come forward this morning as you get a chance simply to pray and ask God or someone to pray for you and help release some of that. Do so as we enter into these final two songs.